How is AI reshaping the future of law and technology? Can the integration of generative AI into legal practices offer more than just efficiency? Join us as we delve into the revolutionary impact of artificial intelligence, exploring its potential to transform not only how legal professionals work, but also how they think about the future. Journey with us as we navigate the ethical landscapes, practical challenges, and the optimistic possibilities that AI brings to the legal sector. Are we on the brink of a legal revolution? Or are we stepping into uncharted ethical territory? What is the future of law in the age of AI? I'm Natalia Barbosa. I'm from Brazil and I've been a lawyer for more than 10 years now. In Brazil, I work for a big law firm, the litigation department with a focus on legal technology. I moved to Belfast to pursue my master's degree in the same field and it's been fantastic. Hi everyone, I'm Anshul Bajaj and I'm pursuing my master's in law and technology here at Queen's. I'm originally from India and I was a practicing solicitor back home doing commercial litigation. Sensing that my passion really lies in the intersection of law and technology, I decided to specialize in this field with the, with the help of this LLM. In today's episode of The Law Pod, Natalia and I are delighted to welcome Mr. Ed Son and Mr. Nimble Hemelge from Factor Law to help us get to grips with these matters. Welcome, Ed and Nimble, and thank you for joining us. It's uh, great to be here. To warm us up, could you tell our listeners a little bit about your journey and what sparked your passion for both law and technology? So I'm Nimo, good to be here. So engineer by profession, actually, and uh, retrained in law. Um, is kind of how I kind of got here. I've been working in kind of legal and contracts delivery for, for years and took the commercial route. And then it got to a point where I was working for a, a company and we were doing a lot of their contracting commercial work for them. And it was at that point I thought, oh gosh, I need to make that switch. I need to, to go and actually focus more on, on delivery. And having that computer science background, that engineering background, and then looking at the way law was heading, it was very much rather than just looking at a whole sort of article or a whole contract as a whole, to the ability to be able to disaggregate that out and to be able to draw that into to smaller pockets and pieces of work really did kind of drive me to go, okay, this is a really cool way and a new, new cooler way of, of actually doing law. So that's what's kind of driven my passion and why I've, I've wanted to really focus on that, that sort of delivery side. So that's me. It's great to be here. Uh, my name is Ed Sohn. I am on the executive team here at Factor. I oversee globally our capabilities, which uh, encompasses a lot of our talent propositions. I live here in Belfast, actually, to be closer to one of our large delivery hubs, but increasingly has also in included the capabilities around artificial intelligence. And that's where I've been spending a lot of my time in I'm going to focus even more in the way that we work with our clients around generative AI and its applications in legal. I am an engineer by background. I am also a computer science degree holder and uh, have spent my time as a practicing attorney, also in litigation, like both of you, um, and also as a managed services leader uh, globally and a product manager and a technology leader uh, at places like King & Spalding, EY, and uh, Thomson Reuters before joining Factor. Our goal at Factor is to deal with complex work, the, the legal work of the in-house department that's complex, but also has a lot of scale. So a lot of what Nimmel is just saying are the techniques that we apply, are the challenges that we embrace in doing that. And so we're really excited to see where technology, advanced technology, 
like generative AI, has a, a new role to play more than the enablement of our services and, and the delivery of what we do uh, and the tracking and visibility that's associated with that, really harnessing what we believe to be a, a singular and different technology capability than what's come before. So we're very, very excited about what the future holds. Let's start from the basics. Would you explain to our listeners what's generative AI and what makes it generative and what makes it intelligent? Sure. Artificial intelligence is not new. It's been around for a very long time, for uh, decades. The ability to get computational power to approximate and resemble the behaviors and the outputs of a, of a human being, of a human brain, those attempts have been around for a very long time, since the time of the vacuum tube com computers and punch cards. Artificial intelligence has for a long time been superior in many ways uh, in terms of its computational processing power, its ability to handle data and spot patterns, chart regressions. But generative AI is where it started to enter into the realm of human creativity. And the way that it works is ultimately a massive amount of data and a massive amount of compute. Uh, this is kind of what's being colloquially uh, referred to now as the big AI strategy. So instead of kind of systematic AI that was meant to approximate human reasoning. This is a, uh, a, a neural network using a transformers algorithm that, that essentially tries to predict the next few words or the kind of the ability to complete data as it stands was being fed a massive amount of data and being reasoned against a massive amount of compute. And at the other side of it now, you have these large language models, image models, and things like audio that can be kind of generated Generative AI, at, for all intents and purposes, is where artificial intelligence, heavy-duty computing power, now having been trained on massive amounts of data, are not simply just looking for similarity and frequency, but actually are using kind of attention algorithms to create predictions. And as a result, with their output that they generate, that's why it's generative, really resembles and can be easily mistaken for the output of that of a human. It's indistinguishable from human content music, audio, voice cloning, images, and, and most importantly for our conversation, words, text, and language. And so generative AI is a leap forward in that, the kind of state of the art of that, that technology and its ability to create content that's indistinguishable from that of a human. So it's a wild time. It's a wild world that we're in, but it represents something that is new. When people say, well, generative AI well, AI has been around forever and it's nothing's new. That's not true. It is new. It is something that has been cooking for probably about six years now since that sort of initial attention-based, transformer-based approach has been put into place. And then with the curation collection of massive data sets and with the availability of insane kind of planet scale level of computing power, we're now starting to see the fruit of that appear in these large language models that have been trained and can now interact and, and conduct inference on a, on a real-time basis. So I read this somewhere where it said that how much ever information or knowledge AI seems to possess, they still don't have the understanding of a human being. What's your take on this? Would you agree with the statement or? Yeah, I think I would. There's a great lecture I just listened to. It's, it's totally freely available online from the Alan Turing Institute. I got to remember the guy's name. I think it's Wooldridge. And he kind of detailed a brief history of generative AI. And one of the things he really impresses very hard is that generative AI really cannot reason or 
conduct kind of logical analysis. Now it has the ability to do so and to approximate that. And it its ability to kind of conduct that analysis is all ultimately derived from its ability to derive meaning from words. But the kind of brain behind it that's happening in every single language interaction is not rooted in reasoning, it's rooted in prediction. And so what it's trying to do is a kind of shorthand for that is it's trying to please us, right? It's trying to find a way to produce content that uh, would make a human feel like, oh, that's good content. And so if you ask it to kind of conduct reasoning over a large number of steps or, or apply judgment to kind of a complicated scenario, what it will do is try to identify, based on the way you describe the scenario, other similar scenarios and then take its solution and then predict a solution as applied to your facts. It doesn't actually sit there, think about those facts, you know, apply critical reasoning to them, and then generate some original response. It essentially takes other similar types of facts and then looks at those solutions and then predicts what that solution might be. This is why some large language models are bad at basic math, because it's sort of like, what's four plus five? And it's like, it's probably nine. You know, like my data set says that many people have thought that four plus five in history has been nine. So I'm going to tell you it's probably nine. It didn't sit there and take, you know, like my, you know, two-year-old toddler would do like fingers and then add them together and then generate that four plus five <laughs> yields nine. It's that it's suggesting or predicting that nine is a likely answer to that question. And there's actually a lot, a huge amount of literature where you know, the, the way that the human brain works, how much does it just resemble also like how large language model works? But while there's a lot we don't know about neurology and like the kind of nuances of that science, we know that there's more to the way we operate than just making a prediction of what the answer is going to be. We don't just guess at everything all the time. We, we actually have, you know, critical methods that we use to kind of deconstruct problems. Now that's changing, but the re when people say what you just said, Anshul, which is that large language models don't reason, uh, that's what they mean. They mean that essentially at the core of the technology, it's always trying to make a, a prediction or an estimate. Lovely. Every time there's a development of a breakthrough technology, the first question that we ask is how it will affect jobs for humans and how will it influence workplaces? So naturally, with generative AI coming to the forefront, how do you see it impacting workplaces and more specifically the legal field? So I'll start here, and then I'd love to hear what Namal has to say, who sits much closer to our delivery and engagement teams um, in, in the application of innovation like this. Our questions that we ask, ultimately, of generative AI, one of the things that we're trying to embrace uh, is that we should not think of it as just another technology wave. And so we shouldn't just think of like, well, what were the technology problems in the past? And then how is this new technology going to do it just better? You know, like, oh, I've got a cooler tool. It's a little sharper. It's more electronic. And now it'll do what the other tool couldn't do. That's not bad. It's not a bad analysis. It should be part of the picture. But where we're starting is, how is this new capability going to solve the problems that we're trying to solve? And that's where it starts. And I think that, and what's required to effectuate that solution, right? Because you can look at generative AI and it's a lot of prototypes and pilots right now. It's a lot of canned demos and look how cool it is and, and see how its upper bounds and limits are. But when you take the race car onto the track, it's totally different, right? When you actually go and you're, you're putting it into production, you're, you're trying to have it respond live to, to the reality of a circumstance, it's a little bit different. You need an excellent driver. You need to understand your conditions. 
And so that's where the human factors are going to play in. Uh, it's, I think, an, a generally unproductive analysis to say, what will generative AI displace, right? Oh, humans are doing it. Now computers are going to be doing it. But instead, as Namal was saying earlier, like what elements or what sort of disaggregated components can we now use a different capability for? And how does that change what the human does in that mix? Um, last thing I'll just say, we do think of in the future, right? Not today in the current state of the technology, but in the relatively near-term future, thinking about AI as a resource, as a virtual teammate, as somebody that we work alongside. And so if you use that metaphor, it's not perfect, but it's much more productive because you can think about like when you onboard a new person on your team, what do you do for that person? Well, you educate that person, you sit with that person, you review their work, you show them your work, right? You shadow and kind of reverse shadow. You check their work until there's a level of confidence that they're getting it right. And then you slowly kind of scale back how much you're checking. You give them certain tasks that will help them learn sort of a broader corpus of understanding. Uh, you put them onto a path. You put them in a team. You help them relate to others. These are all things that you do for a human being. And thinking about those techniques as applied to uh, getting productive, uh, high utility from generative AI, not perfection, which is an automation bias that we apply to technology. Well, if it does something different, you know, one time out of a hundred, then it must be broken. It's like, well, that if you apply that to generative AI, then generative AI is always going to be broken. It's there's variance by design, right? But if you think of it in terms of well, how would I think of what I would do for a person, a new teammate? You apply that, then it starts to make a little bit more sense. And we've been trying to take an approach where we look at our teams and the work that we do and the humans that do it and the problems that we've got. And we've been doing sort of these deep workshops. So Namal, maybe you can tell us a little more about that. Yeah, sure. I guess from a people perspective, there's always an emotional journey. So you know, the introduction of the, that sort of technology and people will always default to, oh, how's this going to impact me? But I think what you said, I, mean, I like the analogy of the race car, but it, it's, it's the enabler. It, re it really is. And you know, that's how we're working with, with kind of our teams on, on looking at actually how is it going to enable them to do their job in, in faster, smarter. And ultimately, what the advantage of generative AI is that it, it will improve quality. It uplifts that starting point. So, and that starting point of when a person's reviewing a contract, for example, that starting point is so much more advanced with the use of generative AI in whether that's a first pass review of a contract or whether that's actually giving some real insights into actually what's been done before, what are the precedents. And, you know, it is that additional person in the room. It very much is that. It's that, that enabler that's that support that enables our people to, to work and deliver more accurately and improve quality it is the the opportunity there of, of having it is 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 awesome to the workshops that we do you know within fact um, you know we are you know looking at you know every engagement uh, looking at every sort of client interaction that we have and looking at some of the work that we're doing for them and we are literally going through each part of the process going actually is that a people change is that a process change is that an organization change? And is that an IT change? And it, it's all of that. And you take that, all of that as an approach. And it is that, that IT change is, will first pass review help? Will looking at a document first time give or generate some insights? 
will we have a better understanding of of uh, that that quality approach that swivel chair that you describe or will generative ai or technology help essentially the 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 accuracy of what we're doing and making sure that client's experience is is better it's faster it's quicker and we're giving them more accurate information or we're giving them real insights into this is what's market this is what we're doing this is what we've done for you before and that's i think that the kind of sort of the real benefit there so from a people perspective it's it's the enabler it really is and, and people shouldn't see it as a replacement of what i'm doing it's it's actually enabler to enable them to do their job faster smarter and, and better and deliver a better client experience right so it'll be more assistive than displacing for for the human race i think that's right i think that what namal saying is also that it's not about displacement or assistive it's actually about improving and changing the output right so this is, if you're trying to get from 1 to 10 it's not like well humans were doing all 10 and now it's going to be 6 and 4 because ai is going to be helping i think the question is how do we make it 12 how do we make it 15 how do we improve quality improve accuracy improve productivity and so the kind of metaphor or analogy that's oftentimes used we we're talking about chess earlier is um Gary Kasparov after he was beaten by Deep Blue IBM's machine kind of proclaimed the arrival of a uh, a new type of chess which he called I think cyborg or centaur chess which is essentially not humans versus AI but a human and plus AI on one side versus a human plus AI on the other side believing that it would actually raise the entire quality of chess that's played and that it would reveal different types of strategies different types of moves different types of even kind of tactics and habits that you might try to play uh and that sure enough has now developed into its own thing it's literally elevated the entire level of engagement and i think that that's what we're going to see in areas like law knowledge worker fields where it's not going to be whether a human does it or whether ai does it but what new possibilities are enabled by humans and ai working together when you said uh you have to look to generative ai as a teammate i thought it was very interesting but then do you think that any legal role will disappear with ai like i have a teammate that does some type of work and then ai does it now so some legal role will disappear new ones would be created uh yes i think so and <laughs> so i think some roles will over time start to evolve very quickly um i believe very strongly in ai's ability to do uh work at higher levels of cognition and you'll see a lot of people recommend like well just find the redundant low level work and make ai do that and i sometimes sort of cringe when i hear that because that's putting us in a mental state where we really are putting a ceiling on ai's capability and potential uh when actually it might be more productive in higher thought kind of level work thought partnership however there's validity to that statement because and this is the, the sort of cold hard truth that we see at factor and that we see all of our clients see as well there's a lot of the minutes in the day that are taken up with things that are not our highest and best use of our brains and that's that's the truth of it and our clients oftentimes give us entire workloads end to end so that we can handle all of it not just the high level complex work which they entrust us with but also on 
chasing people down and following up on emails and getting approvals and things like that. So if that does get displaced, if that if that kind of category of things get displaced, you know, a follow-up email asking for a request to be complete is something that AI can do. That's one of the things that we're working on. And so instead of the mental switching costs of a lawyer having to go back and be like, oh, I need to respond to these five emails or follow up because they were out of office and I need to go get the request complete. Otherwise, we can't move forward with this contract. To take a lot of that that burden and the sort of detail of that task and the switching costs that are associated with having to constantly go back and forth to that, to alleviate that means that what you're left with is a different role, actually. It's a different workload. And so I think that the job will be different, the skills and talents will be different. But there's one important thing I want to say, which is I think that what's implied in your question is like, should lawyers be worried about their jobs? Are we going to have less lawyer jobs, less legal professionals doing work in general? And one of the things that we've observed time and time again over history, it's something called uh, the Jevons paradox. And the Jevons paradox at the end of the day is that the more efficient use of a resource does not result in its conservation. It results in its accelerated depletion. In other words, you know, there's so many examples of this over time. The first one was with like coal and steamboats and like moving goods and waterways and things like that. They thought that, we, oh, we'd be able to efficiently use our coal reserves much much less and we'll have a lot of coal. They ended up lose, like running out of coal much more quickly because people, the demand just spiked like crazy. Uh, the same thing was true of like commercial airlines, you know, like when planes got larger and fuel reserves became more efficient. Pilots and staff were worried about their jobs because they're like, well, we're going to be able to fly the same number of people with like a lot fewer flights. So I guess there won't be as many pilots. No, air travel exploded and you needed more pilots and more because it was more efficient, it became more accessible. And so more efficient supply actually yielded more demand. And I think that we know and we've seen and we can point to data that shows that legal demand is exploding. That, you know, quietly, while we've all been trying to get more efficient and do more with less, the doing more has been an unsustainable pressure that in-house legal departments and law firms and other legal professionals have been facing. And so I don't believe that we're going to see an overall contraction in like human legal roles. I think the skills to do them will be different. I think their workloads will be much more concentrated. But I, I don't think that we'll see fewer. I think we'll just see different roles and different abilities required in those roles. Great to hear that. <laughs> yeah. So to delve a bit more into Factor's practice area, how are you guys at Factor harnessing the power of generative? What are you doing to help law firms and helping to enhance legal work? So... The workshops that Imal mentioned are the kind of first step of how we're looking at internal transformation. One of the things that we're doing is we've invested into our research and development, and they've been building really fascinating prototypes that teach us exactly what this technology could be harnessed for, and also where it may be not as applicable. One of the best outputs of the workshops is actually when we get all these use cases in from the engagement teams, we look at all of them and we say, well, this is actually not even a tech change. This is just like a basic process change. Somehow the team has evolved into doing this extra complicated thing and there's good reasons every step of the way, but now we have an opportunity to rationalize that and bring that back to normal. Uh, sometimes there's other technology that exists today that's still better than the current state of generative AI. And we have those tools and we have mature ways of implementing them with low risk. So we go with those. And then sometimes it's like, well, here's where generative AI makes the most sense. And those things teach us where to pay attention first. And so our R&D people take that back and they're like, okay, that's going to turn into a roadmap for them. So we've been investing into building those prototypes. 
building them in Microsoft Azure, experimenting in other environments, uh, understanding how to use them in more advanced ways. So not just kind of prompts and GPT kind of talking to you, but also like, how do we take the output of one and then feed it to another? How do we connect that to backend data systems? How do we connect that to even like document assembly engines and algorithms that already exist? So you're kind of hybridizing where generative AI is using its language capability, but also data is flowing in a more conventional way somewhere else. And then last thing I'll say, and then I'll turn over to them all, uh, we're also working just with our clients. Our clients have come to us, many of them, for a period of time last year, he said 2023 is the year of generative AI. There's a few months where every conversation was about generative AI. And we're like, uh, we're here to talk about contracting. They're like, what about Gen AI? What are you guys doing? And one of the reasons is because we don't sell technology at Factor. Today, we don't have a quick buck to make in all this chaos. And so clients look at us, they say, well, you have the same workload as we have. And you're not going to try to turn a quick buck in this moment of chaos. So I feel like I can ask you in a very trustworthy way, like, what are you going to do? We're trying to figure out what we're going to do. What are you going to do? And what we found is that there's an opportunity to take our clients' very independent and parallel and siloed journeys and put them all together and say, hey, let's not all go off and waste three months trying to build a prototype for knowledge management and then like document our experience and get all these lessons learned. In the meantime, technology is taking huge steps forward and it's we've already gotten outmoded. And then the next you know, organization is doing the exact same journey. They're putting the exact same effort in. Oh, at Factor, that hurts to see that. So what we're doing is we're convening a collective of these in-house legal departments, general counsel offices, and we're going to work together to actually divide and conquer and coordinate and collaborate our efforts so that they can force multiply what they're doing and get you know 10 to 15 times more productivity. Because the problems are the same and most corporate legal departments are not really competing with each other. Law firms are different, right? They're more in competition. There's, But corporate legal departments, in my time in this industry, we've never seen so much commonality of the problems that they're facing. And they're very excited to kind of pay it forward and collaborate with each other. So that's the other thing Factor is doing is forming this collective and then getting a lot of uh, general counsel's offices involved in um, really empowering them and then co-developing and sharing our, our knowledge as well. From a, I guess, a delivery perspective, our clients, you know, 2023 was the was the, the year where every client did actually did come to us and go, what are you doing on generative AI? How's that, how's that working? And, and expecting us to kind of have, have sort of the answers and, but it, it's evolving so, so quickly. Um, and which is why we've kind of been running these workshops and why we've been taking a very sort of, it's the puppet model. We're taking that very sort of process, organization, people, IT approach to actually how do we look at each engagement? And then we work with them and most of the solutions are, it is a process change or actually we can use a better bit of automation technology here. And often it's clients are saying, well, generative AI is the panacea. Actually, it's, it's not, we can do things in a, in a kind of a smarter way um, that might give a bigger lift. If we just automated what we're doing here, that might give a bigger lift. If we got cleaner data up front, that might give a bigger lift. And uh, all of those things, you know, work together. And, and then once you've got that sort of basic understanding or that basic platform, actually, we're not trying to boil the ocean here. Then you can overlay what generative AI can do and, and you can really drill into what is the real client need here? What are they really trying to achieve? Is it faster turnaround time? 
is it better quality? Is it just being able to report to their their stakeholders that they know where they are with each transaction at what time? And and it's then taking that need and then looking at it and going, actually, yes, Generative AI could help here in that second pass review for quality. So we can save some time here because lawyers already done the work. We put it through a Generative AI model that will tell us what is market, what is standard, what you didn't put in your, your markup this time based on precedent that you did the last 16 times before. And and then it gives them the opportunity to go, well, well, why? Why didn't we do that? Why? And it leads to what I was saying before, that, that sort of quality enhancement. You know, that essentially what, what, what it can do. From a, I guess that, you know, looking at it from a, a kind of a delivery lens, it's then going back to the clients, then going, this is what we can do with you, generative AI. Oh, and by the way, um, but if you did this, this, and this, that would be a real enabler. That would be enable you to, to manage your business in a far better way. So that's kind of the approach that we're taking really with some of these workshops. I think preparedness is really the key. And we are seeing, because having been in a couple of these workshops, areas where we're like, well, that's not for Gen AI yet, but it will be at some point. And having really clean data for it to reason over and having really good telemetry on how those insights inform what decisions are made is going to be critical for Gen AI to actually have a chance in the future. And so there's a real mistake in going overly deep on generative AI, but it's really important to stay very broad on it, not just because of uh, the fact that it's a different kind of capability and not just like a set of tools, but like something that we need to think very kind of creatively about, but also because the future is coming very fast. And so when you say, well, it's not good enough for that task, the, the thing that we have to resist doing is internalizing that as some kind of permanent fact, because it may not be able to do it today, but what's true in January is ancient history in February. And so the pace of the state of the art of technology is advancing so quickly that we have to kind of keep an eye out for what'll happen, maybe not in this arc of continuous improvement and evolution, but maybe as quickly as the next arc. And so that's something that we're always watching out for as well. Like it's, I 100% agree with everything that Namal's saying. A lot of times, like there's so much hype that clients are like, let's just take this Gen AI and smear it all over everything. And there's been so much promise that everyone thinks that that's the current state of the art. It's not. A lot of it is absolutely not. But it's not a, I don't discourage that thinking altogether though, because it very quickly could become that. <laughs> And so it's great to kind of move at this pace and, and hold those ideas in tension while doing the most productive thing, while kind of delivering on, on the trust that our clients give us to really make sure the work is being served the best way today. So Ed, you spoke about clean data sets to be trained on, for the LLMs to be trained on. There are obviously some problems because generative AI is, st is still in its infancy and problems like bias or hallucinations that are creeping in in these models. How do we deal with those uh, in the workplace? The, the problems of uh, inaccuracy and things like even data privacy, like those types of problems will be handled from a, um, they're technological problems. And so they're ones that people are already working on and making significant progress on. There's actually um, hundreds of techniques now that you can use to reduce hallucination. There's new research papers being written every day. I read one yesterday that was like, you know, it's like who if uh, who wants to be a millionaire? And then they, they're like, oh, I, I think it's D. And then uh, the host is always like, final answer. And they're like, maybe. If you just do that, 
if you literally every time an LLM gives you an answer, you say, "Are you sure?" You weirdly get better, like much better responses by simply asking, "Are you sure? Is that right?" Reconsider the what your answer is, and then think it through and how you might improve it, and then it just gives you an improved answer. There are so many techniques like that, and what'll happen is that some of them will become invisible. You don't have to have this like inane conversation where you get an answer and then you have to like question it immediately, or these strange hacks where you're telling it that like you know um, you're gonna get fired if it doesn't give you the right answer, things like that. Like I mean, they all work, but what'll happen is that they'll start to you know fade into the background and they'll happen more invisibly, so that we're not behaving really weird and in strange ways. And so those technological issues will resolve themselves over time because the technology continues to advance. Issues like bias. Issues like safety, issues like regulation, those are human behaviors, and those will be harder because we are in a world of consuming the most powerful possible capability constantly, and that's why sort of human progress has been very asymptotic. And we'll have to show restraint collectively. We'll have to accord ourselves to regulations collectively. Um, I heard the general counsel of Anthropic speak, and. His jobs before joining Anthropic were in um, the Arctic Ocean and in outer space, and so his entire world as a lawyer has been counseling on what's been happening in unexplored frontiers. And one of the things that he cited was the ability for multinational agreement, uh, voluntary consent, and compacts, international law, basically, to agree to and to accord themselves to safe behavioral practices going forward. Um, without just like a thousand regulations and penalties coming, and it kind of and 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 that sounds weird because it sounds like strangely risky, but it's been one of the most effective modalities to things like preserving the Arctic Circle, you know, ensuring that we're dealing with space responsibly. And so I think we're going to need those human behaviors. And so there is precedent. We can, in fact, work together, right? The entire world's not just absolutely doomed because of like self-interest, but. Those are going to be harder, and that's going to require us to just work together, and to say that while something some power is available to me, I'll like withhold and restrain, you know, maximizing how much I take of it. That will be the ultimate test, I think. Okay, we're talking about concerns. Uh, we are curious about like how law firms, especially, uh, will deal with concerns such as client confidentiality and ensuring client data is safe and not being used as a data set to train AI models. Because like working in a law firm, we know that client confidentiality is like one of the most important like concerns. So I can talk about it a little bit technologically and then it'd be interesting just to get your experience from practice. I, I'd say um, that is actually a technology constraint and not a human behavior. Um, it's both. It's a little bit of both. But from the technological side, Uh, we'll resolve that. There are ways to have closed models. There are ways to ensure that your data is not going into a training set. I think that there's a really big question, and this is going to be one of the biggest questions of 2024, which is what uh, what was in those data sets and with what sort of legitimacy, right? We all know about the New York Times lawsuit that's happening. And what people don't know is necessarily is that that was the third largest fraction of the data set The, uh, that, that it was being trained on. So the common crawl data set, the New York Times was, was one of the largest sources in that data set. Um, I think when you talk about law firms and legal practitioners and legal content uh, that might be copyrighted or even privileged or even a secret, 
somehow making its way into a model such that it might be able to be reproduced. I think we have to look at the safeguards and behaviors that are already in place around secrets and privilege and confidentiality and the duty of an attorney to maintain confidentiality, a fiduciary duty to, in an attorney-client you know, relationship, maintain communications or legal advice that's privileged. I think that that will be important to kind of look to what precedents and structures already exist. I think in the meantime, the risk I would counterbalance against the risk of sort of some kind of security or privacy concern would be the risk of inaction. And it's like, well, so you can't just not do anything forever. I think clients are asking for it. The upside, the value is way too high to be ignored. So what it takes is actually pursuing a solution. And some of those will be technological and some of those will be human solutions. And law firms and, and companies like ours that work with clients will need to agree together with clients what's considered a safe way forward. Uh, and that safety will have to continue to be tested and evolved uh, as we go forward. I think cybersecurity and data privacy professionals will never be more important. Not because we just need more of them to like sit around and like, you know, slap people's hands and like enforce <laughs> things, but because we're going to need people with a deeper understanding of what the actual technology risk is and what the actual obligations legally are. And we'll need that kind of discipline to mature very quickly uh, as it has been, but in a very new way. So I don't know, Nimal, your thoughts. Education is key. I think I think the solution is 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 what the solution is today. As you say, um, we'll find a technology solution. We can have the closed data sets, and and I think that will all kind of work out and work itself out. But the, the way we manage privacy today, the way that we work with our clients and protect their information, we put in a process um, that won't change. We'll educate our people. That won't change. Um, it may be how we do it slightly, that might change, but um, it's still the same principles of putting in place a robust process, making sure that you know we do look after our, our clients' data as we'd want it looked after our own, and, um, and educating our people along the way, this is what you do and what you don't do. And you know, I look at our, our cybersecurity training that we have in Factor, and um, you know, it's pretty robust. And you know, there's testing that they do you know, throughout the year with people and you know, we've just been through that sort of whole exercise and and what came out of it was actually there's a lot of people that need to really think about you know, cyber security um, um, and that won't change just think it'll be a similar type process similar type solution and we just need to to really look after our clients data but so um, we, Ed, of course, read your paper on uh, the build versus buy argument, uh, what the law firms are using in GPTs and how custom GPTs augur into that argument. So if you could shed a light about, a bit about that. Yeah, I think build versus buy has been sort of a uh, lesser of two evils type of decision, especially for legal teams, law firms, in-house legal departments, especially in-house legal departments with very constrained budgets um, as they're a cost center and it's not on the revenue side of the business. The uh, decisions have been to either build with duct tape and bubble gum and using Excel and SharePoint however they possibly could and hopefully getting to a good solution that meets the features and the requirements of their users. But even once it gets there, you know, things like maintenance costs and support and ensuring that things don't sort of get deprecated or, you know, kind of fall out of the solution somehow. Um, and so that's its own kind of wrestling match and struggle. Uh, and it's gotten incrementally better. People have built some pretty cool solutions in-house, but 
um, still kind of like leave something to be desired. And then in the buy side, it's been, well, we have these amazing technologies in the legal tech world that are being fast fueled by huge amounts of venture capital and private equity. And they're running at features and building their roadmaps and advancing it. You know, uh, they've got these heavy duty SaaS kind of applications and platforms. And then it's on the legal departments and legal teams to now implement those things, deploy, configure, train their users, tend to adoption, deal with kind of miscommunications or, or mismet sort of mismatched requirements. That's its own headache. And legal technology, I think there are some statistics out there, especially in our area of contracts, where implementation risk is greater than 50%, like a failed implementation, certainly failing to meet the business case in the ROI, but sometimes outright failure. Uh, we see clients all the time now moving from one major solution to their next one because they're already migrating to another solution because their first one's totally failed. So that's not to denigrate legal technology. I was in the product world. I've got a lot of friends. There's some great solutions out there. But uh, it's, it's yielded very mixed results. I think now with generative AI, building has become so much more robust. And the ability for generative AI, it's, it's, it's crashing into everyone's enterprise IT stack meaning that legal departments don't have to go out there and buy it. It's just part of the core IT stack. If you run on Azure, if you run on AWS, if you're in the Google Cloud, if you, then you now are going to have access to generative AI at your fingertips. If you're running in the Microsoft 365 world, you're going to have generative AI built into your application layer. And so the ability for builders and configurers and developers in-house in, in, in really powerful IT groups to create solutions that are more powerful and more intuitive. And even the building of itself, like writing of the code itself being Gen AI powered is going to create much, much stronger solutions that are built in-house. And then there will also be really the product makers in the external market that you buy from are also going to be powered by some incredible capabilities. And But I think there's going to be a third category of users that can build on the fly, kind of like master builders from the Lego movie that are able to assemble things on the fly that really meet the needs of users and kind of narrowing that distance from like the user requirements and the user problem and the pain points and turning those into stories and putting them in development and presenting it back to them, hoping that it's good. Now that can happen inside of a user's brain, inside of a user's workday, inside of their experience in, in a given hour. The metaphor I always use is that our colleagues in finance have had the ability to make Excel macros and visual basic macros anytime they wanted to because it's a more technical field and they deal with numbers and they spend an hour or two hours dealing with data and swivel chairing and cleansing it and matching it and like writing these formulas. And then after a while, someone was like, I'm going to just automate that with an Excel macro. And what took an hour is now going to take 45 seconds. Lawyers never had that. We've never had the ability, we've never had the capability um, that presented itself that could actually do some of that for us. And, and then if we've had it, it's always been sort of gatekept by either IT departments internally or legal tech product markets. Certainly users never had kind of the environment that was conducive to them themselves having the facility to create those on the fly. And now we've got that because English is now the most powerful programming language in the world. And we have a tool, we have a capability that's actually a good fit for legal work because legal work is language centric at the end of the day. And so that opens unbelievable opportunities with things like custom GPTs and GPT Builder for the OpenAI world or Copilot Studio or things in Vertex AI in the Google world. They're just unbelievably amazing organic capabilities that have a much lower cost of entry for the average user 
to be able to generate solutions on the fly. And so that's not a now, but it's very much a next. It's happening very, very quickly. And so we think that's going to dramatically change the build versus buy calculus. Well, should we do an RFP and like get, look at all these solutions and, you know, like take all their licensing costs and then try, or should we try to build and make a business case? It's, it's, it's a completely different ballgame in sort of the next 12 to 24 months. And so that's a very exciting time, but it's a time that's going to require changing what paradigms we apply to those decisions. Right. Now, some might say that with legal tech being so niche and with the advent of Gen AI, uh, some, some argue that it'll end up concentrating power too much in the hands of a few big law firms where because they have so much of resources and they can have access to the newest tech as soon as possible as it's on the market, uh, it'll give an edge over them to, say, a small sole practitioner practicing a litigation in a place like Belfast or in like a small court in Delhi. What's your take on that? Um, <laughs> there'll always be room for the, the, the niche players and, and for the, the smaller enterprises, absolutely. Um, uh, you, you take the, the likes of a huge law firm that can throw money at it and throw money at the problem. They do that now. That, that isn't changing. Um, uh, and I don't think it will, will change the landscape at all, really, to be honest. I think the, there'll always be a requirement for the, the right resource, the right location, and the right tools that they use. It's no different to now for me. I would just add, I think uh, in the United States, something like 70 to 80% of legal services needs are unmet. And so there's a massive market or need that's un un unserved and underserved today. And so a lot of those needs are not in large organizations that would hire top law firms. A lot of those needs exist for the small solo practitioners. What large language models will do is actually democratize scale. It will give them and put at their fingertips armies of virtual teammates that they can bring to bear and take on more and better work. I've met you know, some of the people that work at small boutique law firms, and they're just some of the best lawyers in the world. A lot of them have left large law firms or declined to go down that path because it's not the cultural environment that they wanted or like the business pressure that they wanted to take on and wanted to be their own boss and hang their own shingle, but totally capable of handling really sophisticated matters or handling with great quality and with great sort of advocacy, uh, you know, a different tier of matters of which there's, there's much more unmet demand. And so I think uh, GPT-4 passed the US bar exam not just passed it, but was in the 90th percentile. And that exam includes multiple choice questions, but also essays. And so that that's similar to the performance of like a top 14 elite law school. Imagine a small solo practitioner having an army of top law graduates, kind of that level of proficiency on, on their teams and, and discharging the work. What could they do? How, how might that provide a solution to this spiking demand. So I don't think that it'll be overly consolidated into a small number of, of firms. If anything, those large law firms continue to serve their market segment and will require that type of consolidation of knowledge and data to better serve their clients. And I do think there's going to be a very different competitive landscape to those top 100 law firms. And there will be those haves and have nots and winners and losers in, in that new kind of tournament. But I don't think that uh, today, if they're not really competing for kind of the same type of work, then I actually think what you'll see is the floor will be raised very high on uh, the small and solo and boutique world. So finally, what 
what's in store for 2024? 2023 was Generate AI. What do you guys feel uh, in, in store for 2024 in the legal workplace and with regards to legal tech? And just to add, the show, I'm excited because like this conversation made me excited for the yeah. next years, uh, like uh, working uh, on a law firm. And it's very optimistic. Yeah, <laughs> yes. yeah. A step change in improvement in quality. Yeah, definitely. I, I can kind of see that with a, you know, a, a delivery hat on. You can see where technology can really enable people and, and improve the quality of what they're doing. Getting things right, first time right out the door, that's important. I can kind of see that. And, you know, the engineer in me, the quantum contracting, that's where I'd love to see it move to. So, you know, making real-time decisions quickly. And that, I think, is, is kind of that path, that sort of where the future is going. I would say two things. One, the pace of technology advancement will not slow. Some people think that we've hit a plateau and all we're going to need to do is apply generative AI to like all the amazing use cases that are out there and then get it to work into our system. Uh, it's actually not true. So in 2019, GPT-2 had trouble counting to 10. And then in 2021, uh, 2022, GPT-3 was able to read and recite sentences and get like sort of a minimal passing score on college entrance exams. And in 2023, GPT-4 is able to exceed human benchmarks on many, many tasks. But the thing is, the formula of how generative AI works, which is what we talked about at the beginning, it, it leads us to believe that the next release of the next models that will have 10x the data set and massive advances in computing power and the ability for the hardware to catch up to the demands of the software and then catch up in a way that's very broad and broadly accessible to many. That portends that we're not hitting a plateau, but actually new emergent features of generative AI are going. Because AI, generative AI is discovered and not designed. It's not a product that someone came away and said, well, here's all the problems that people are facing. I'll make a product that kind of meets them. They just fed this electronic brain an insane amount of data and an insane amount of computing. And the next magnitude will be 10x yet again. And so people talk about kind of Moore's law and semiconductors and how like more power was coming out of chips every four years. We're seeing a, a, an analog of Moore's law in large language models. So th the point is, if we think we know what the tech is, and if you get on you get on YouTube and you see talking heads and people are like, well, here's what it can do and here's what it can't do. All of that's a, got a very, very short shelf life. And the expiration dates are like yesterday. <laughs> that All of that will change. And so we have to continue to expect to be confronted with this whirlwind of technological advancement, frankly, that society maybe have, has gotten some fatigue towards. Like, it's almost like, okay, like it keeps, and we don't even know exactly how to feel about it because it's moving so, so fast. This is like pace unprecedented, like by industrial revolutions and things. But the second thing I think that we will do because our heads will all be spinning and we won't know what to do, what else to do, is that it'll start to emerge what, where human value actually is. And people will really start to think about like, well, what are we going to need to do? What are the things that kind of quote unquote have a moat or like are unlikely to be encroached by? Because as we discussed, generative AI has a limit to reasoning. Even if its ability to do what it can do continues to skyrocket, there's a territory, there's an area where, you know, we're not yet seeing generative AI, you know, in our human relationships, right? Which is so important to our work of transacting that contract management happens inside the context of relationship management. 
then most of the time you're not going to look at the letter of the clause and provision and you know, accelerate a default and then immediately bring claims in like a dispute. But most of the time you're going to go talk to the party and understand the business context and discuss that inside of the, the context of a relationship. And I think those areas of professional practice in law and in other areas will start to kind of get spotlit, spotlighted more. Those are the areas that there's an ineffability to the quality of human relationships that's not being threatened by generative AI today. And I think that that is going to be highlighted even more in 2024. And I think that law firms and legal departments are going to start to look for those skills and those talents. We already see that in a lot of the future of work studies. Like, what kind of skills are we looking for? We're looking for empathy. We're looking for good judgment. We're looking for people management. These are the qualities that everyone is looking for now. Soft skills. Yeah. Yes. And so I think that those will not just be sort of interesting statistics in like a LinkedIn survey. I think we're going to start to see that really show up in the workforce and hopefully make its way into like legal education at a place like Queens yeah. <laughs> and, you know, in place where we're really preparing the next generation to be actually even more human, right. not yeah. just more technology enabled, and, but even more human, because that's where there's differentiated value in our membership on these teams together with our virtual teammates. It's very good to hear that, isn't yeah. it? It's, yeah. wow, that was a wonderful discussion. Yes. Yeah. But thank you so much, Ed and Emil, for being here with us today and for this insightful discussion. I'm sure 2023 was just a glimpse of what the future holds for human jobs across various fields. And it's left to be seen what ethical challenges will 2024 bring with it. Thanks again, Ed and Emil, for joining us. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in. Thank you all. It was thank a pleasure. You. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.